0: We'll begin from ayah number 67. Ma it is not permissible, it is not possible, it is not conceivable that begin for any prophet of Allah, and that yakuna, he would be lahu for him, meaning that a prophet of Allah would take, what would he take? Asra, prisoners. Which prisoners? Prisoners of war. Hatta until Yuthkhina, he inflicts a massacre. Fil in the earth, in the land. Turiduna, you all want arada, the commodities, the benefits, ad dunya of the world. Wallahu and Allah yuridul akhirah, he wants the hereafter for you. Wallahu azizun hakim and Allah is the mighty, the wise. In this ayah and the following verses, the matter of the prisoners of war is mentioned. As you know that the battle of Badr brought victory to the Muslims and there were mainly two main concerns, main issues that came up. First of all, with regards to the war booty and secondly, with regards to the prisoners of war. As you know that in the battle, 70 of the mushrikeen were killed and 70 of them were also taken as captives. And the word for captives is asra. Asra is a plural of Asir from the root letters, Hamza, Seen, Ra. And Asir is someone who is bound, meaning a prisoner, a captive, and it refers to the war captives over here. So in this ayah, what is mentioned? That it is not possible, it is not conceivable that a Prophet of Allah would fight, why? Just to take captives in war. That the objective becomes, what? To take war captives. Just as previously, it was emphasized that the Muslims don't go to battle just to make and fail, just to get war booty. Likewise, it is made clear here that the motive of the Prophet, when he goes to battle, is not to get war captives. The purpose is far beyond that. The purpose is far more important than just taking war captives. And what is that purpose? يُثْخِنَا fil-ard. is from the root letters nun. is basically intense massacre, intense bloodshed. And this word is used over here to show that when there will be such massacre, then what does it refer to? That the power of the enemy is completely broken. So in other words, the purpose of battle is not to fight the enemy take some of their wealth as booty and catch some of them as prisoners of war and later on let them buy their freedom from you in exchange of uh, ransom. But the purpose is to break the power of the enemy. Because if Muslims go to battle, they make some money by getting war booty, they catch some prisoners and let them buy their freedom and make more money. Is that the purpose? Make money? Is that why the Muslims go to battle? No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is condemning that over here. dunya, You want the commodities of this life? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants something different for you. And what is that? The benefit of the hereafter. And the benefit of the hereafter, a person cannot have until and unless he can practice his religion freely. And the religion cannot be practiced if there are forces against the Muslims preventing them from practicing their religion. So it is clarified over here that when you go to battle, your intention should not be to make booty. Your intention should not be to catch people and let them ransom themselves in exchange of money. No, your purpose is far beyond that. Now what happened was that when the Prophet returned from Badr and there were those 70 captives with them, some of the captives remember that they were Great criminals, meaning they were such individuals who had inflicted great harm upon the Muslims for all those years. Amongst them was uqba bin Abi Mu'ayyad who had also harmed the Prophet ﷺ, physically abused him. And not just that, he had also spent a lot of money against Islam, against many Muslims. So when these certain individuals were caught, they were not just taken to Medina. What was done? They were killed at Badr and they were basically obviously, buried over there in one of the wells. And the rest of the prisoners, they were taken to Medina. The Prophet ﷺ, he consulted the companions. What should we do with these prisoners of war? Umar ﷺ, obviously, you can imagine, he got up and he said, Oh, Prophet ﷺ, cut off their necks. Finish all of them. These are our enemies. Allah Taala has given dominance to us over them. So finish them off. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't like that idea. Because amongst the prisoners were those who were vehemently opposing Islam, and amongst the prisoners were also those who were kind of forced in that situation. Like for example, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abbas رضي Anhu. And there were other people also who had actually embraced Islam, but because of their tribal associations, they were not able to leave Mecca and come to Medina. They didn't have the heart to do that. They didn't want to give up their worldly prestige and honor. But their hearts accepted Islam. And the Muslims gained power over them. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't like the idea that everyone should be killed. And if you think about it, in a group of people, everybody is not at that same level of opposition. right? Everyone does not have that same level of hatred. There are people who vary. So the Prophet ﷺ asked again, again Umar who stood up and he said, kill them all. The Prophet ﷺ turned his face away. The third time he asked the same question, again Umar got up and he said, kill them all. The Prophet ﷺ again looked away. Then Abu Bakr ﷺ, he got up and he said, let's just take them to Medina and let them buy their freedom from us. Meaning, let their families send money to us in order to ransom them. So the Prophet ﷺ, he liked that idea. Why? Because first of all, these people... Their lives would be spared. Who knows? They might be guided to Islam in the future. And that happened. Many of them, including the uncle of the Prophet, ﷺ, embraced Islam, did hijrah. Alright? And secondly, there was also some financial gain over here. Right? So, this is the reason why the Prophet ﷺ liked that idea. And what happened? The prisoners were taken to Medina. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala disapproved of this. Because the Muslims made this decision with consultation amongst themselves and they didn't wait for the wahi to come. You understand? With regards to the booty, the Prophet ﷺ, he just told the companions, this is neither yours nor is it mine. So put that sword down. It belongs to who? Allah. So we're going to wait for his decision concerning the booty. But what happened with The captives consultation, decision was made, some were killed, some were taken to Medina. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded the Muslims for taking that matter in their own hands. And you see, the Prophet Wasallam, he liked that decision that take the prisoners to Medina, let them buy their freedom. And the other Muslims were also interested in that. Why? Because there was financial gain. Okay, there was financial gain. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded the Muslims that to Dunya, you just want to make money here? Wallahu Akhirah, but Allah wants the hereafter for you. Allah says Laula, if not, Kitabun a decree, min Allahi from Allah, had it not been a decree, a legislation from Allah that سَبَقَ that had preceded, that had already been decided from before. Lamassakum, if it was not for this, then what would have happened? Surely it would have touched you. What would have touched you? Fima concerning that which akhadtum you took, meaning because of the ransom that you took from the prisoners, what would have touched you? Adabun alim, a great punishment. What does this mean? You see, Allah subhanahu wa taala had already decided that the law concerning the captives would be what that either they can be freed in exchange for a ransom, or they would be killed, given the level of their crimes. And this was later revealed in Surah Muhammad ayah number 4. فَإِمَّا مَنَّمْ بَعْدُ وَإِمَّا <فِذَاء> That either show favor to them by letting them go, meaning by not taking any ransom, setting them free for no fee, or وَإِمَّا <فِذَاء> or let them buy their freedom, meaning let them give you the ransom, and then let them go. And obviously the third option is that those who are really severe in their opposition to the Muslims, then they will be killed. So anyway, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had decided from before that this option will be given to the Muslims. However, had He yet revealed it? Had He yet revealed it? Not yet. So the command was decided, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had not yet informed the Muslims about it. Okay? So they were hasty in their decision. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that basically you're lucky that the decision that you make conformed to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had decided. Because if it was something different, then you would have been in a lot of trouble. If if the decision that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made was not what you made, then you would have been in a lot of trouble. So basically you're fortunate that the decree of Allah, the decision of Allah concerning the matter of the prisoners is exactly as you made. So basically what's the problem here then? If eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was going to reveal the same command, and the Muslims decided the same from before, what was the big deal? What was the big deal here? Why was it a problem? The problem was that they took matters in their own hands. They didn't wait for Allah's command. And there was a little bit of greed over there. What greed? The financial gain. So, لَوْ كِتَابُ مِنَ اللَّهِ سَبَقَ لَمَسَّكُمْ فيما أخذتم عَذَابٌ What does this show to us? A very important principle of religion. That all of the commands and prohibitions in our religion are from who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that even the Prophet ﷺ did not have any say. In the sense that everything that he taught had to be according to what Allah had decided. Which is why when the Prophet ﷺ, he said once that, that's it, I'm not going to have any more honey. I have made honey haram on myself. Because one of his wives didn't like that. There, was, there is a story behind that, into which inshallah one day we will learn. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed that, O Prophet, why do you make unlawful what Allah has made lawful? Meaning you're not allowed to do that. So the legislation is really coming from who? Coming from who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all of these ayat are a proof, are an evidence that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi was really a messenger of Allah. Because if he was a fabricator, like people say about him, then why would he be reprimanding himself? Really, doesn't make sense. He wouldn't be reprimanding himself. Nobody would do that. People who fabricate such things, people who want to show their greatness, they don't become humble in front of others. They don't show this kind of humility. They don't make that up. So these ayat, they prove that Muhammad ﷺ was really a messenger of Allah and the entire legislation is whose? Allah ta'ala's. So, لولا كِتَابٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ سَبَقَ لَمَسَّكُمْ فيما أخذتم عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ So in other words, Allah's decision was what? That the booty be permissible for the Muslims and also prisoners of war, if they are caught, then they may be ransomed. Alright? This is permissible. Which is why the Prophet وسلم said that I have been given five things which were not given to any Prophet before me. And amongst those five things was what? That booty has been made permissible for me. So Allah says, "Fakulu." So then eat. All of you eat. Meaning, take happily. minma From that which غَنِمْتُم You have obtained as booty. Whatever you have obtained as booty, whether it came at the battlefield, or it came in the form of the ransom that the prisoners paid for their freedom. Okay, so غَنِيمَ is of two kinds over here. First of all, the booty that was gained at the battlefield. And secondly, the ransom that came later from the people of Mecca to set their prisoners free. So Allah says, eat the booty. How? Halalan, it is halal for you, permissible for you, tayyiban, it is pure. Meaning, don't feel any guilt when using this. It is absolutely halal for you. وَاتَّقُوا And fear Allah. Inna Allah غَفُورٌ الرحيم. Indeed, Allah is forgiving and merciful. The Prophet ﷺ said that war booty was never allowed for any among mankind except us. So basically, in the previous umam, the previous nations. so for example, Bani Israel, if they ever went to war with their enemy and defeated the enemy and gained some booty, were they allowed to use it? Was it halal for them? No, it was not halal for them. Then what would they do with it? They would just gather it up together in one place and set it on fire. They were not allowed to use it. They were not allowed to sell it. It was not halal for them. It was made halal for who? Only the Prophet ﷺ and his ummah. And with regards to the prisoners of war at the Battle of Badr, we learned that amongst the prisoners was the Prophet ﷺ's uncle, Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet's cousin, Aqil. Who was Aqil? The brother of Ali Okay. Then also, amongst the prisoners was the son-in-law of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Imagine, the son-in-law of the Prophet Sallallahu Sallam, and his name was Abu As, and he was married to the daughter of the Prophet Sallallahu Sallam, Zainab Anha. Imagine the son-in-law had to come to fight against his father-in-law. There were two things over here. First, he was a prophet of Allah. And secondly, he was his father-in-law. But still he had to come fight against him. Why? Because that was what the Arabian culture was. In the sense that you will support your tribesmen. You will support your tribesmen. So if your tribesmen are going to war, you have to go with them. And the Prophet ﷺ was also related to them. But you see, they had no respect for him. They had no respect for him. But they had respect for others. They had violated so many, so many principles in their enmity against the Prophet ﷺ. So anyway, these three men were also brought to Medina as prisoners of war and they had to buy their freedom. Basically, they had to ransom themselves. Very interesting story. We see that Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, he said to the Prophet ﷺ that I do not have any money. So please set me free. Meaning, I can't buy my freedom. I can't ransom myself or my cousin and all of these people. I can't do that. So please set me free. Because remember that there were several kind of prisoners of war. First of all, those who were great opponents. They were killed. Secondly, those prisoners who were wealthy enough, who could buy their freedom. So what was done? Money was taken from them. Thirdly, the prisoners of war were such who could not afford to ransom themselves. Okay? So what was done? Some of them, they were set free without taking any ransom. And others were told, okay, since you can't buy your freedom, what do you do? You have some skill. Like for example, some of them knew how to read and write. They were told, if you want to be free, teach 10 children, 10 Muslim children, how to read and write. Teach them. If you teach 10 children how to read and write, then you're free. So that's what some people did. You understand? Now, Abbas, he said that, O Prophet I I don't have any money. So he was hoping that he would be let free without having to buy his freedom. The Prophet said, What about the money that you and Umm al-Fadl, his wife, buried? Meaning, before you came here, you and your wife buried all that money and you said to her that if I am killed in the battle then this money that I buried is for my children Al-Fadl, Abdullah and Qutm. Abbas was shocked. عنه, that how do you know? He said, By Allah, O Messenger of Allah, I know that you are Allah's Messenger. For this is a thing that none except Umm Al-Fadl and I knew. This is something that even my children didn't know. And you know about it. So if you know, then definitely revelation comes to you. Definitely, you are the messenger of Allah. So, Abbas ﷺ, he gave another try. He said, O messenger of Allah, could you count towards my ransom the 20 rupiah that you took from me in the battle? Meaning that amount of money that I had brought and you took it from me as war booty. Could you count that as part of my ransom? The Prophet ﷺ said, no, that was the money that Allah made as war spoils for us from you. So you better go, get that money and set yourself and your family free. So that's what Abbas had to do. He had to give the ransom and set himself free. Now, with regards to the treatment of the prisoners of war, how were they treated? When we think about prisoners of war, I mean we're thinking about people who are chained up, who are left to starve, who are beaten up, who are tortured, so that some information can be taken from them. This was not what happened with the prisoners of war who were brought in Medina from Badr. How were they treated? We learned that the Prophet ﷺ instructed the Muslims, deal with them kindly. The prisoners of war, how should you deal with them? Kindly. One of the prisoners, Abu Aziz ibn Umayr, he said that I was lodged with an Ansari family. So what does it show? That they weren't just chained up like animals and tied to some pillars. No. They were lodged. Where? In houses. Why? There were multiple benefits in that. First of all, the family could keep an eye on them together. All right? Secondly, they would be taken care of. Thirdly, they would see Muslims and Islam. Who are Muslims? How do they live? What is Islam? Because the thing is that many times what happens is that when you're viewing a people from a distance, then you can misunderstand them. Isn't that so? You misunderstand them, you don't know what they are actually, how they actually live. But when you go visit them, when you spend some time with them, when you eat with them, then you understand who they really are. Which is why we see that throughout the history of Islam, many people who were taken as captives, when they saw what Muslims actually were, what Islam actually is, then what did they do? What did they do? They embraced Islam. This is something that happened 1400 years ago, and this, this is something that has happened even now. right? So, This is the reason why the Prophet ﷺ had the prisoners of war kept where? In the masjid, somewhere in the masjid, because then they would see how the prayers are established, what the activities of the Muslims are, how they deal with their messenger, how they deal with one another, what their values are, what their morals are. And some of them, they were lodged in the houses also with the families. So he said that, I was lodged with an Ansari family. And they gave me bread to eat in the morning and the evening. Meaning with my food, they gave me bread. You might say, yeah, of course, why not? Bread was not common in Arabia. You know why? Because bread is made from flour. And flour is made from what? Grain. And grain doesn't grow in the desert. And Arabia is what? Desert. In the oasis also, what do you have? Palm trees. Palm trees, meaning date trees, what do they grow? Dates. You cannot have crop in Arabia. You can't have that. So that means that flour came from where? Abroad. Abroad. Okay? Every household did not have it. It wasn't their staple food. It wasn't their staple food. It was expensive. If you had it, you would feed it to yourself and your children first. But we see that this Ansari family, what did they do? They gave bread to this prisoner morning and evening. And themselves ate only dates. They themselves ate what? Only dates, in the morning and the evening. And they gave to this prisoner bread. Bread. And he said, if anybody had a morsel of bread, if they had even a little piece, a little bit, what would they do? They would give it to him. And this prisoner, he said, I would feel ashamed, embarrassed, that you're feeding me this expensive food and you've got nothing yourself. So he would return it sometimes. He would refuse it. But what would they do? They would give it back to him untouched and insisted that he eat it. They insisted that he eat it. So when the prisoners received this treatment, they understood what Islam actually was. Then when they went back, there was a change in them. Their hearts were softened towards Islam and Muslims. They understood what the Prophet ﷺ brought. Until now, because of that hatred, there was a barrier. Because of that bias, there was a huge barrier. They didn't understand Islam properly. So now they understood. And which is why we see that many of them embraced Islam either right at that time or soon afterwards. So, فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ Allah says, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّبِيِ O Prophet, قُلْ Say Say to who? لِمَنْ to those who? فِي أيديكم In your hands, meaning in your control, who مِنَ الْأَسْرَى From the captives. Meaning those captives who are still with you. Why are they still with you? Their lives were spared. They couldn't buy their freedom immediately. They're waiting for their families to gather the money and send it to the Muslims so that they can be freed. Or they cannot afford it at all. So they're still with you basically. They're not ransomed yet. Tell them, in if, ya'lam, he knows. Who knows? Allahu Allah. If Allah knows, fi قُلُوبِكُمْ in your hearts, on any good. If Allah finds any good in your hearts, any kind of good in your hearts. Then what will happen? Yu'tikum, he will give you. Khairan better, than that which ukhida, it was taken, minkum from you. If there is the slightest amount of good in you, then what will happen? Allah will give you something better than what has been taken from you. ويغفر لكم, and he will forgive you. وَاللَّهُ غَفُورُ رَحِيمٍ And Allah is forgiving and merciful. Question. What was taken from the prisoners of war? Hmm? Their freedom. Their freedom was taken. So they're told over here that if there is any good in you, then Allah will give you something better than your worldly freedom. And what is that? Guidance. Islam. The blessing of Islam. That Allah will guide you through this experience. And with that Islam you will have true and eternal liberation. Because Islam, Tawhid, it liberates a person's heart and mind from slavery to what? Slavery to this world. Slavery to the idols. Slavery to false gods. And it liberates a person from what? Hellfire. Because hellfire is also a prison. So it liberates a person from hellfire and where will a person end up? In Jannah, the home of freedom. So, قُلْ لِمَنْ فِي أَيْدِيكُمْ مِنَ الْأَسْرَى إِنْ يَعْلَمِ اللَّهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ خَيْرًا يُؤْتِكُمْ خَيْرًا مِمّا أُخِذَ مِنْكُمْ Allah will give you better than what has been taken from you. Allah will guide you to Islam if there is some good in you. And once a person is guided to Islam, then وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ Allah will forgive you for whatever that has happened before. All your opposition, your hostility, your acts of violence against the Muslims, everything. Allah will erase for you. he's Lakum. Allahu Rahim. He is forgiving and merciful. Also this ayah means with regards to those prisoners who had to buy their freedom, who had to ransom themselves. So for example, Abbas, Radullah, he a hefty price to free himself and his family. Now that was a lot of money. And remember that he also tried to have that twenty ruqiyah counted towards his ransom, but the Prophet ﷺ refused. Allah says over here, Allah will give you what is better. So Abbas, he commented that after I became Muslim, Allah gave me 20 servants. He owned 20 slaves. He was trying to save how much money? 20 uqiyah. And he had so much money that he owned 20 servants in place of the 20 uqiyah I lost. In other words, he was saying, that I got a whole lot of money, much more money than I had previously. And this was a blessing of what? Islam. And this is true. When a person takes a step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when a person accepts Islam, when a person takes their religion seriously, embraces it fully in their heart and in their body, inwardly and outwardly, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens the doors of His mercy for him. Yes, there is a period of test and trial. Like Bilal ad anhu, when he embraced Islam, wasn't he tested? Right? And the example that is given is that when you go to buy a vessel, a container, then what do you do? You knock it first. Right? To check how firm it is. So my Lord is testing me. How firm and determined I am in my religion. So initially there is a period where a believer is tested. But when he crosses that, when he passes that, then the doors of mercy, of blessings are open for him in this world and in the hereafter. In the Qur'an, Allah says, اسْتَقَامُوا عَلَى الطَّرِيقَةِ مَّا غَدَقَا That if they remained firm on the right way, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have surely given them abundant rainwater. And rain signifies what? Provision and risk That Allah would have opened the doors of His mercy to them. And this is something that happened. The mushrikeen, you know what? One of the main reasons why they didn't want to accept Islam. Do you know why? What was the main reason? They didn't want to lose their worldly influence. Because you see the mushrikeen, especially the mushrikeen of Makkah, they were the dominant tribe the entire Arabia respected them. Why? Because they were the caretakers of the Kaaba. And not just that, there were many idols placed within the Kaaba, around the Kaaba. And what would happen? People from all over Arabia would come to Mecca, bringing their offerings to the idols. Now imagine if they're bringing a whole truckload of, let's say, grain, and they're dedicating it to the idols. You think they're just going to sit there and rot? Who's going to eat it? Who's going to use it? The Quraysh. You understand? The caretakers. So they said that if we leave shirk, if we say these idols are not true, we break them, and we don't worship them anymore, we don't respect them anymore, you think all these people are going to come now? You think they will bring all this grain, all this money, all this food? And if they don't bring it, where are we going to eat from? How are we going to survive? But what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? that you leave what is wrong for Allah, Allah is your provider, and He will give you what is much better. What is much better. And this is something that's true. If you see Makkah today, you can find almost anything there. Rizq, so common over there. Just the other day, this lady was telling me, that a friend of hers, she happened to be in the haram, and she had her children with her, she was waiting for somebody, she said she got so tired, she just wanted to sit somewhere. And she couldn't find any proper place. So she just sat, you know, on the floor. She's like, I'm just sitting there in that heat, exhausted with my kids, waiting for whoever. And she said, people started dropping money in front of me. (laughs) Thinking that she was, you know, a poor lady sitting there. So she said, people just started dropping money in front of me. So she just got up and moved somewhere else because she didn't want to take money like that. But anyway... Rizq is so common in Makkah. You cannot go hungry there. You can never go hungry there. I remember I was very little. We went for Umrah. And uh, generally it happens that when you go there, you catch a cold or your flu or something like that. So all of us were a little unwell. And um, you know, you just want that tea when you're sick, right? You just want a nice warm cup of tea. And I remember we're sitting there in the haram. And this lady she comes up with this huge percolator kind of thing, right? And what is she doing? She's got that nice shy, right? That nice Arabian tea, Arabian coffee, whatever you want to call it. And she's just pouring cups and her children are going around giving them to the people. Another experience, the same Umrah, I was very young at that time. This woman just came in at iftar time and she's distributing boxes of yogurt and dates and bread everywhere, everywhere. To everybody. You cannot go hungry there. You cannot go hungry there. Why? Because you come there, you go there to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah is your provider. So He will provide you every meal. You can't go hungry. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises over here that if you have any good, Allah will guide you to what is better. And Allah will give you more than what you had before. He will give you better than what you had before, and it happens. People leave a job for the sake of Allah, and Allah gives them a job that is much better in every way—the timings, the money, the everything. It's so easy, so much more convenient. Because when a person takes a step towards Allah, Allah takes ten steps towards him. What in and if Yuri they want? خيانتك, your. Khiyana, meaning they intend to betray you they intend to betray you how? that the prisoners of war they outwardly become Muslim just so that they can be set free and then what happens? they go back and they plot even more against the Muslims so if they are cheating you betraying you by their outward acceptance of Islam then Allah says don't worry don't worry. Because you see, if a prisoner embraced Islam, he would be set free. Alright? So, you might have this fear. He's just becoming Muslim to become free. And he's gonna betray us. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us to deal with the people on their outward. Right? Trust them. So, Allah says, don't worry. Because, فَقَدْ For verily, خَانُ الله, They betrayed Allah من قبلُ before. Before also they betrayed Allah. How? That's some of them who had become Muslim, they still came and fought against the Prophet ﷺ. Wasn't that khiyana? That you say you're Muslim, and here you are coming with weapons against the Prophet ﷺ, against Abu Bakr and Umar. Isn't this khiyana? That is not Islam. So they have betrayed Allah before. And what happened? Fa'amkana. So he empowered. He empowered who? You. Minhum Against them. The word amkana is from the root letters mim, kaf, And makana is to have firmness and stability. And amkana is to enable someone, to give someone power. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala empowered you over them. He gave you power over them. He gave you victory over them. They came betraying Allah, His messenger, fighting against you. And what happened? Allah let you defeat them and catch them as prisoners of war. So if they were caught this time and they go betray you, you think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot catch them again? Allah cannot empower you against them again? Of course He can. And ultimately, where will they go? Where will they find refuge and shelter from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? They cannot. Temporarily they can survive, but in the long run, they cannot. Allahu alimun hakeem, And Allah is knowing and wise. So what does this ayah teach us? That don't even think about doing khiyana with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can escape once, you can escape twice. But how many times will you escape? You can't run forever. Which is why we see that people who commit crimes, they get by, they manage to hide, they manage to change their identity. They can survive for a couple of years, maybe even a decade, but eventually what happens? They're caught. And if they're not caught in this world, they're definitely caught by the angel of death. Right? And in the hereafter, justice will be established. Innaladina <inaudible> Amanu. Indeed those people who believed. Wahajaru and they migrated. They did hijrah. Wajahadu and they did jihad. They strove in the way of Allah. How did they strive in Allah's way? Be Amwalihim with their properties, with their wealth, with their money, they spent their own money in the way of Allah. When they went for Badr, nobody sponsored them. They took their own horse, they took their own camel, they took their own weapons, Bi wa him. They strove in the way of Allah, with what? With their lives. They put their lives in danger. They went hungry. They became tired. They were thirsty. They were exhausted. They got injured. They bled. Why? In the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they spent their money and they physically suffered also why only for the religion of allah subhanahu taala to defend his religion to support his religion that is why they strove fi sabilillah in the way of allah so who are these people alladhina amanu wa hajaru wa jahadu bi amwalihim wa fi who is this referring to the immigrants, the muhajirin Those companions of the Prophet ﷺ who first of all left their homes in Mecca, went to Medina, did they find peace and happiness there? Inner happiness and peace for sure. But worldly peace and happiness? Not exactly. Why? Because they had barely settled that in the second year after Hijrah, what did they have to do? Go to Badr. Put their lives in danger. Whatever little money they had left, they had to spend that even. They had to spend that even. Anybody here bought a new car recently? Okay. Now, if you have your new car, alright, and you're told, take five kids in your car, in the winter, hm, and drive them to Ottawa, would you do that? Brand new car, would you do that? Would you? No. Why? Because you know that those kids are going to ruin your car. Right? Your brand new car is going to be ruined. Because when something is used, wear and tear is expected. Correct? Now imagine, if a person has a little bit of money, imagine they've been saving for five years to get a car that they really, really want. And they want a brand new car. And they get it. How will they keep it? How will they look after it? They'll clean it every weekend, even though it's not dirty. No food allowed in the car. My husband was like that. Until the kids came. And then obviously with them their milk bottles and their sippy cups and obviously all those splashes everywhere in the car and their winter boots and back seats of the car dirty and the seats dirty. Everything. The whole world changes, right? But if you have your new car, you take care of it like anything. You think twice before giving somebody a ride. Huh? How particular are they? How neat are they? How clean are they? If they're the messy kind, I'll make an excuse. Hmm? But we see that the companions, they took their horses and their camels, whatever they had, the best of what they had in fact, where? To the battle. They had to. What does it show? They took their religion seriously. They took their religion seriously. The deen was a personal matter. You know like your car, you won't let other people ruin it, but if your children ruin it, you say, it's okay. They're my kids. Right? It doesn't matter. I'll clean it. It's okay. We'll get another car. Khair inshaAllah. doesn't matter. Kids are kids. We give a thousand explanations. This is why we see that many times what happens is that people... Before they have kids, they're so particular. My watch, my stuff. And when the kids come, then the same father is giving his expensive watch to the kid to play with. Before, where is it? Nobody touch it. Oh my God, my friend's kid is here. Make sure he doesn't get a hold of my watch. Make sure he doesn't get to touch the glass table because he's going to leave fingerprints. And then when the baby comes and he smashes the glass table, it's okay, we'll just get a new one. What's the difference here? My kid versus somebody else's kid. Right? Somebody else's kid ruins my house, not acceptable. My kid breaks my glasses even, $500 pair of glasses, doesn't matter, my kid. Yeah, you're upset, but my kid. Attitude is different, right? So there are some people who take their religion as, my religion, my deen. And others say, yeah, religion. It is deen. It is Islam. But it doesn't have anything to do with my personal life. The sahaba took the religion as a personal matter. Which is why they suffered abuse because of it. They tolerated every difficulty, every suffering. They left their homes. They gave up their families. They even fought against their own relatives. Imagine. Imagine. The Prophet on one side, and who's on the other side? His son-in-law. Can you imagine? Abu Bakr عنه on one side, his relatives on the other side. Because the muhajirin were who? People from Makkah. And who was coming to fight them at Badr? People of Makkah. So there was blood relationships between the muhajirin and the people of Makkah. They were brothers, they were uncles and nephews, cousins. They had many relationships that tied them together. But we see over here that the Muslims, they preferred Islam over anything else. You know, in one of the battles, we learned that Abu Bakr, his son, who later became Muslim, he said that many times, I don't know if it was Abu Bakr or some other companion, that many times you were very close to me and I could easily attack you. I could have easily killed you, but I didn't. I avoided you. And that companion, he said, that but if you... Came in front of me, I wouldn't have avoided killing you. Because you were coming at war, not against me, against Allah and His Messenger. And Allah and His Messenger are more beloved to me than you are. So if you dare raise a weapon against the Messenger of Allah, I'm not gonna leave you. This was their love for their religion. This was their sincerity. This was their dedication. This was their Islam. What is our Islam? What is our love? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises such people, al-ladina amanu, wa hajaru, wa bi amwalihim wa anfusihim fi And on the other hand, al-ladina and those people who ah whoa, they gave shelter. Hamza to give shelter, ma'wa, place of shelter. So they gave shelter. Wa nasaru and they helped. They assisted in every way. Who are these people? Who are these people? The Ansar. First, who is mentioned? The Muhajirin. Because their sacrifice was more. And then who is mentioned? The Ansar. Because the Ansar, what did they do? They gave shelter to the Muhajirin. They welcomed them in their homes, in their city. And they also helped the Prophet ﷺ. They also helped the Muslims. This is why we see that when the Prophet ﷺ was going to go for Badr, the battle, he asked the companions, what do you say? The muhajireen, obviously they offered their wholehearted support. And the ansar, they were quiet initially because obviously what they understood was that if one of the muhajireen is speaking, he's speaking on our behalf as well because we're all brothers in faith. So then one of the ansar, finally he got up and he said, perhaps O Prophet Allah, you want an answer from us. We're not going to say to you what the people of Musa ﷺ said to him, that you and your Lord go fight and we are sitting here. No, we're going to accompany you. We're going to go with you. They helped. They weren't required to. But they still went forth and helped the Prophet ﷺ. So Allah says concerning the muhajirin and the insaf, Ulaika those بعضهم, Some of them awliya They are the friends of one another. These are friends. This is friendship. This is loyalty. This is wilayah. This is brotherhood. Such brotherhood that goes beyond race, that goes beyond treaties and pacts and what was agreed upon. This is love. Auliyah بعضهم أولياء بعض والذين آمنوا Allah says, and as for those people who believed, but وَلَمْ yuhajiru But they did not yet migrate. They're still in Mecca. And in battle they come against you then are they also your awliya no how can they be your awliya malakum there is not for you min from walayatihim their friendship min shay in anything hatta until you hajru they migrate meaning those people who have accepted islam but they're still in makkah they're still with the enemy they're still siding with the enemy so if the enemy comes to attack you they're coming along with them fighting against you then what are you going to do say that oh they're muslims also you so you're not going to fight them I mean, if they're coming in battle against you, trying to harm you, then you have to defend yourself. And you have to fight against the enemy. So even though they're Muslim, they're coming to fight against you, Then you're going to fight against them. This is sad, but it's reality. So when is it that they will become your awliya? When they join you. You understand? Because who do you accept as your friend? Just someone who says, best friend forever? Will you accept those verbal claims? When will you accept that they are really your best buddy? When? When they show support. Correct? When they show that friendship. Like for example, somebody says, you're my best friend, you're my best friend. And they're having a party and they don't even tell you. They don't even tell you. The whole class is invited and you don't even know. And then you wonder what happened. to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I completely forgot to invite you. You'll be like, yeah, whatever. And they say, but you know what, best friend. (laughs) Are you going to accept that? Are you going to accept that? Never. This is not friendship. If somebody says they're your good friend and they want the best for you and you find that they're talking to your other friends against you, they're letting out your secrets, are you going to accept them as your friend? No. Friendship is shown through actions, not through words. It is shown through actions, not through words. So Allah says about those Muslims who side with the enemy, that yes, they are Muslim. We don't doubt their Islam, but they're not your friends. If they join you, then yes, they're your friends. But, wa in and if, sarukum, they seek your help. They seek your help, fiddeen in the matter of religion. They're living in Mecca. They're living with the enemy, but they seek your help because of the religion. Like for example, they say that we are in great trouble here, we are being persecuted, we need help. Please send somebody to help us out here. We need to get out of here. and We don't know how. If they seek your help because of the religion, then فَعَلَيْكُمْ Then on you is النصر, is the help. Meaning then you must help them. Then you must assist them. In other words, if there is a Muslim... Living amongst non-Muslims. And he says, I'd like to leave. And these people are persecuting me. So please come and defend me. Come and get me out of here. Then the Muslims must help that Muslim person. So what will they do? They will fight against the enemy. You understand? So if somebody calls you for help, then you have to respond to their call. Illa Except Allah Against a people, meaning against that enemy, between you and between them, there is what? Mithaqun, a covenant, a treaty of peace. Then, in that situation, you will not respond to the call of that Muslim. You have to look at the greater good, in the sense that either you save one life or you save many lives later on. Wallahu bima ma basir, and Allah is watching whatever that you do. You can understand this from the incident that happened at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Remember the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. one of the clauses was that if somebody goes from Mecca to Medina, not allowed. They have to be sent back to Mecca. Alright? Now, someone who goes from Mecca to Medina or wants to get out of Mecca to go to Medina, what are they doing essentially? Seeking the help of the Muslims in Medina. So the Muslims are technically obligated to help them because this is what the ayah says, but if there is a treaty between you and the enemy, then you're not going to help that Muslim, which is exactly what happened. There were Muslims who lived in Mecca, persecuted, who wanted to join the Muslims in Medina, but because of that treaty, what happened? Those Muslims, when they went to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ had to send them back. He had to send them back. He couldn't, he couldn't fight against the Mushrikeen. Why? Because that is what the treaty. Stipulated. So, what happened to those Muslims then? You know what happened? They were sent back to Makkah and they escaped Makkah. They didn't go to Medina, they got out of Makkah again, they ran away. And they ran away and they started living by a route which the mushrikeen used to take regularly in their trips. Okay? And what would they do? They would threaten them and frighten them and raid them. So eventually the mushrikeen sent word to Medina and they said, please, Muhammad Wasallam, please call these people. This group of bandits, they're like harassing us. We can't go in security. So the Prophet Wasallam called them then. But anyway, what do we learn over here? That if there is a treaty, if there is a covenant between you and a people, then you have to respect that. Even if some Muslims are suffering. Because it is only a few people that are suffering. And inshallah, Allah will reward them for their suffering. But the pact demands, the pact demands from you that you respect the matters that you've agreed upon. And you must do that. And inshallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make a way out for those who are suffering. And that we see in the seerah of the Prophet Wasallam. But the main lesson we learn over here in which we can relate with is that as Muslims we must remain true to our covenants, our promises, our treaties, even if we're making them with non-Muslims. Even if we're making them with the non-Muslims. Khiyana, treachery, deception is something that does not befit a believer. This is why previously also what did we learn? That if you have a reason to think that the enemy is going to go against the treaty, then what do you do? If you wish to break it, if you wish to nullify it, then do so openly. Not that you go and secretly attack them. No, there has to be an open declaration that this treaty has now been violated. Let's listen to the recitation.
1: <laughs> تريدون عرض الدنيا والله يريد الآخرة والله عزيز حكيم لولا كتاب من الله سبق لمسكم فيما أخذتم عذاب عظيم. فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ يَا أَيُّهَا النَّبِيُّ قُل من al يعَلَمِ الله في قلوبكم خيرًا، who is خيرًا، one خيرًا مما أخذ منكم ويغفر لكم، والله غفور رحيم. وَإِنْ يُرِيدُوا خِيَانَتَكَ فَقَدْ خَانَ اللَّهَ مِنْ قَبْلُ فَأَمْكَنَ مِنْهُمْ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ ان الذين امنوا وهجروا وجاهدوا باموالهم وانفسهم في سبيل الله والذين آووا ونصروا والذين آووا ونصروا اولئك بعضهم اولياء بعض we والله بما تعملون بصير.